Welcome to the online Zoom service of the Unitarian Church of Edmonton. My name is Susan Rattan, and this community has been my spiritual home for 20 years. We are a liberal, multi-generational religious community. We celebrate a rich mosaic of free-thinking, spiritually questing individuals joined in common support and action. We welcome a full range of theological perspectives, including atheism, as well as a full range of spiritual traditions and practices. As a Unitarian Universalist congregation, we strive to be a community where everyone is able to fully participate, regardless of gender, gender expression, race, color, ethnic or national origin, religion, sexual affectional orientation, age, class, physical character, or disability. Whether you have been part of our congregation for decades, decades or this is your first time visiting, we welcome you. Whatever the faith and traditions of your past, we welcome you. Whatever your theological stance, we welcome you. Whatever your heritage, we welcome you. Whoever you are and whomever you love, we welcome you, the whole of you. We especially welcome any visitors who might be with us today and invite you to join us for conversation in the breakout rooms once the service has ended. We invite you to place your name and contact information in our online guest book, which you can find on the uce.ca website. We gather today in gratitude on Treaty 6 land. A treaty as is an inheritance, a responsibility, and a relationship. As part of that relationship, we are sharing with you the new Indigenous names that have been given to Edmonton's 12 redrawn municipal wards. The names were chosen by a panel of 17 Indigenous women, the Committee of Indigenous Matriarchs, and approved by City Council in December. Today we share with you Ward 3, located in North Central Edmonton, which is now the Tastawinawak Ward. Tastawinawak is Cree for the in-between people, a reference to their LGBTQ community members. The Cree do not have a binary view of gender. In fact, they recognize eight genders, and each gender has its own role to play in the betterment of the community. The Cree believe all people are unified by a single spirit. And in Cree culture, each individual can choose where they belong, what responsibilities they assume towards their community, and they are free to move between roles as they wish. Good morning, I'm Reverend Leanne Washington. I am serving as the Unitarian Church of Edmonton's Interim Minister. Our theme for the month of March has been commitment. And while today is still within the month of March, we're going to jump ahead into April's theme, which is becoming. And this service will incorporate elements of both the concept of commitment and of becoming. What I like about April's theme is that accepting that we are always becoming suggests a certain amount of humility. If we're always becoming, then we're never without an opportunity, if not a need to grow, to change and to develop. 
In that vein, I note that one subconscious trap of what we're coming to understand as white privilege is that we often think we know better than others, especially others who are not as educated as we are, who aren't as wealthy as we are, who aren't as refined as we are, and so on. We tend to judge people based on their status in life, meaning that we tend to judge harshly and dismiss those that we consider beneath us in some way. While we don't like to acknowledge this, it is indeed a deep-seated part of our culture that we think this way if we are in the white and privileged category. On this Palm Sunday, though, through an examination of the role that do uh, donkeys play in two biblical stories, we'll explore how letting go of all that nonsense helps us become wiser. Respecting the lived wisdom of those less privileged than ourselves, listening to their stories, and seeing the world from their point of view can help us open our eyes and become more effective in bringing justice and love and compassion into the world. In his poem, Desiderata, Max Ehrman tells us to speak our truth quietly and clearly and to listen to others, even to those we may, from our privileged position, consider to be dull and ignorant. For he says, they too have their story. Now, let us join in worship. We begin our sacred time together as congregations around the world do by lighting our chalice. As we light our chalice, Yvonne Miro will read the words of Reverend Maureen Kaloran. Blessed is this ground on which we stand. Holy is this place. Holy are the places of becoming, the places of clear vision where life and world are intertwined and we can see forever in this moment and give thanks. Holy are the places of becoming. Blessed is the ground on which we stand. Holy and whole making is this place. With mics muted, please join in singing hymn number 170. We are a gentle, angry people.
An important part of our community is sharing the joys and sorrows of our lives. If you have a personally significant joy or sorrow, please type it into the chat window at the bottom of the screen and we will be able to see it. I will read them aloud. So your joys and sorrows will be part of our posted recording of the service. If you'd like not to have your joy or sorrow available to the public, then indicate that in the chat with the prefix private and then add your joy or sorrow. You may also send your joy or sorrow to candles at uce.ca. While you compose your joys and sorrows, please take a moment to reflect upon the joys and sorrows and the life of our community. Susan lights a candle of joy. Uh, because she and Mike Keese will sign one of our church renters to a new lease. Yvonne lights a candle of remembrance for her father who died four years ago today. Lynn lights a candle of support for Sasha, who is in the hospital despite her understandable mistrust of the institutions that betray Indigenous women. A candle of concern 
is lit by Jane for Suzette, who recently lost her mom. Lynn lights a candle of thanks to Susan and Mike for all their work with the renters. Ruth lights a, a candle of gratitude to all people who contribute financially to UCE and especially to those who have already returned their pledge card. Jan lights a candle of remembrance for her husband, Jim, who died six years ago yesterday. Yvonne lights a candle of concern for her siblings' health. Lilius lights a candle of joy because she feels that Edmonton is her spiritual home and she's glad to see everyone here this morning. Audrey lights a candle of sorrow for the Muslims who are persecuted in Myanmar and the two Michaels in China and millions who are not free to believe and live in safety. Lynn lights an additional candle in remembrance for Jim McMillan. We miss him still. Sherry lights a candle of concern, sending thoughts for thoughts of healing to her father who has leukemia but doesn't want to tell anyone lest they think he's weak or that illness will make him weak. Now I light one candle for all the unspoken joys and sorrows held within the sanctuary of our hearts and also for all those who have yet to find a spiritual home where they can share their joys and sorrows. The story about Jesus's entry into Jerusalem was commemorated each Sunday it appears in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as is the case in many instances, while the gist of the story remains consistent, there are variations in the details of the story from Gospel to Gospel. My adaptation of the story incorporates some details from each of the Gospels. Gordon Ritchie will now read my adaptation of the Palm Sunday entry story. When Jesus and his disciples had come near Jerusalem and had reached the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village there ahead of you. Immediately you will find a young donkey. Untie it and bring it to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this. Jesus needs it and will send it back here soon. Some bystanders said to them, what are you doing untying this colt? The disciples told them what Jesus had said, and the bystanders allowed the disciples to take it. Then they brought the young donkey to Jesus, and they threw their coats on it. And he sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughters of Zion. Look, 
your king is coming sitting on a donkey. As Jesus approached Jerusalem riding on a donkey, a very large crowd holding branches of palm trees and leafy branches that they had cut from the field came out to greet him. As they lay down their branches on the path before the donkey, they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Others shouted, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Thank you, Gordon. I'd like to stay with this reading for a moment. Reading scripture thousands of years after the biblical events they portray, we often miss the message and the symbolism integral to a story. To get the most in meaningful interpretation from this story, it's important to know something about the various images that had meaning to those in the ancient Middle Eastern world, but no longer have meaning to us. First, leaders rode horses if they rode to war or to impress or to intimidate. But they rode donkeys if they came in peace. As depicted in other books of the Bible, such as 1 Kings, Judges, and 2 Samuel. So Jesus made an intentional decision to ride into Jerusalem riding upon a donkey to indicate that he came in peace, not to intimidate or impress or conquer. Second, more than a hundred years before Jesus' time, palms were associated with liberation and the cleansing of Jerusalem. They were indicative of cleaning the pollutants caused by occupying forces. Such was the case, for instance, during the Maccabean revolt. And they seem always to have been symbols of power and victory over enemies. The crowd who came out to meet Jesus wanted the Messiah that they were promised by the prophets of old. They wanted a military hero who would conquer the Romans and run them out of the country. They weren't looking for another spiritual leader. They were looking for one who would save them from the Roman oppression and reestablish Jewish freedom and autonomy. The crowd simply misunderstood Jesus's intentions and were deluded by their own desires. So they saw what they wanted to see and responded accordingly. They gathered palm branches to wave and then lay down before Jesus's donkey as it carried him into Jerusalem. The crowd's message in word and in deed was something like, Jesus, you are the one who will save us from the Roman occupation. You are our conquering hero. You are our king. But the humble donkey knew. She knew that she was carrying a modest and enlightened carpenter from Galilee, rather than the conquering hero the crowd expected. Our next reading comes from the book of Numbers chapter 22 and involves a talking donkey. 
Though I have adapt adapted the story for Unitarian Universalist ears, I must issue a few potential trigger warnings concerning the anthropomorphizing of and repeated references to God and concerning the mistreatment of an animal. If you would prefer not to listen to this story, you may mute the sound on your computer until we advance to the next slide. After the Israelites left Egypt, they came upon the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan River across from Jericho. The king of the Moabites saw that the Israelites were many and he was filled with dread. He thought to himself, this horde of Israelites is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So he sent messengers to Balaam, a local prophet who was neither an Israelite nor a Moabite. The messengers were sent to Balaam to say on the king's behalf, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to us. Come and put a curse on them because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of my country. For I know that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. When Balaam listened to the voice of God within, he understood that he was not to go to Moabite with the to Moab with the Moabites because the people he was being asked to curse had already been blessed by God, as evidenced by their successfully escaping their captivity in Egypt. So Balaam told the Moabite messengers that he would not do what the Moabite king wanted. When the messengers returned to Moab and told the king that Balaam would not curse the Israelites, the king sent another set of messengers to Balaam not to let anything to tell him not to let anything stand in his way because the king would reward him handsomely and would provide him whatever he wanted. This time, when Balaam listened to the voice of God, he discerned that he was supposed to go to Moab and curse the Israelites after all. The next morning, Balaam saddled his donkey and went with the messengers from Moab. Because of this, God was very angry with Balaam. God sent his own messenger, an angel, to stand in the road to oppose Balaam. Balaam was riding on his donkey when his donkey saw the angel standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. So she turned off the road into a field. Balaam struck her to get her back on the road. Then the angel stood in a narrow path between two vineyards with, with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel, she pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he struck her again. Then the angel moved on ahead and stood in a narrow space where there was no room to turn around no room to turn at all, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel, she just lay down under Balaam. And he was angry and he struck her again. Then God opened the donkey's mouth and said, and she said to Balaam, 
What have I done to make you strike me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey, you have made a fool of me. If I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, he said. Then God opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel standing in the road with his sword drawn. So Balaam bowed his head in shame and prostrated himself before the angel. Then the angel asked him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If she had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now. But I would have spared her. Balaam said to the angel, I have sinned. I have made a terrible mistake and have missed the mark. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now, if you please, I will go back. Throughout biblical literature, donkeys are depicted as dependable, ever-present, beasts of burden, carrying people and their things from place to place without ever being given a name, with the exceptions noted here, never being acknowledged for their work, or in the case of Balaam's donkey, for saving a life. Balaam suffered from a particularly severe form of blindness common to those who think too much of themselves and devalue those who are looking out for their interests. Balaam suffered from pride. He was on a mission to get to the Moabite king as quickly as possible to curse the Israelites, despite his previous reservations, and to collect his reward. And his donkey was simply non-compliant. Did Balaam consider finding out why his donkey was behaving out of character for her? No, he was blinded by his drive to get to Moab. She is, after all, only a lowly donkey meant to do her master's bidding. Had he just given her the respect that her years of loyal service should have earned her, he could have saved her much physical pain and himself embarrassment before the angel. Now, I ask you, among the human population, who do we take for granted and whose voices are discounted by those in places of privilege and power? And I'm not just talking about our elected officials or the titans of industry. I'm talking about you and me. I'm talking about what is commonly being referred to now as white supremacy culture, which describes not just interracial relationships, but the hierarchical stru structures and value systems so prevalent in our culture. If you'll indulge me for a moment, I'm going to share two important lessons that I learned even before I graduated from high school. Some of you may already have heard one or both of these stories, so I apologize, 
but I do think they're worth repeating. When I was a teenager, my father was the general manager for a small marine resort here at the mouth of the Rappahannock River and the Chesapeake Bay. In its day, it was a safe harbor and place of respite for boaters sailing up and down the intra-coastal waterway of which the Chesapeake Bay is a part. Very wealthy people, some with yachts so big that they were big as a house, temporarily docked there, filled up their gas tanks, purchased provisions, washed their clothes, played tennis, ate lavish meals, and if they wanted, slept in a room with a queen-size bed. They could also stay for a few days to explore the local villages, antique shops, and farmers markets. One of my first jobs at the resort at age 13 was hostess for the restaurant. I greeted people, checked for reservations, found seats for drop-ins and delivered menus. Over the years, I graduated from hostess to bus girl and then to waitress. I still remember vividly when a young MBA graduate was hired to manage the restaurant. He was cute and personable if not a little self-absorbed and self-important. He was looking for something to do to impress my father, to make some significant and noticeable, but not too radical change. He took a look at the waitress uh, station. That was the entrance from the dining room to the kitchen. A single large swinging door separated one from the other. In the wait staff station, he saw an ice machine, a soda drink dispenser, a water dispenser, a cooler with salads and dressing in it, a warmer with rolls in it, and a cooler with various desserts. To this day, I could draw you a map of its footprint and where everything was located. Admittedly, it hadn't had a thorough cleaning, you know, the kind with bleach and wire brushes and, you know, in the crevices and behind the machines in a while and was looking a bit run down. Unbeknownst to everyone, my father, the head wait staff, the regular wait staff, and the chef, that became his target. One morning, I walked in early for breakfast shift and stopped dead in my tracks. The entire station had been cleaned and rearranged. The cleaning was a brilliant move, but rearranging the station was a disaster. The entire morning shift was nonplussed. What had been a well-synchronized team of people moving rapidly, efficiently, and smoothly around each other in a tight space without mishaps became a farcical and dangerous stop-and-go operation that resulted in several drinks and plates crashing to the floor. What this arrogant young MBA in restaurant management failed to do was watch the wait staff work to see how well the original equipment placement, though nonsensical to him, put each thing a wait staff person needed in the order in which it would be taken to a guest's table and in an order that guaranteed that the most precarious items, drinks for instance, would be the last thing placed on a serving tray. Not only did he not take the time to see how things were working before making changes, he failed to ask 
anyone using the equipment within that space what was working and what was not working. From his perspective, I imagine, wait staff are nothing more than the hired help. They don't have a master's of business administration in restaurant management, and they're not paid a large salary, which after all determines the relative value of human beings, especially in the workplace. So why consult with them? Clearly, they don't know what's best for them. The original arrangement couldn't possibly have been the result of their lived experience and thoughtful consideration of what works best. Surely they wouldn't have anything to contribute to his decision-making process. I expect that the young MBA didn't expect anything but praise for his actions. He surely didn't expect that those who depended on him for their jobs would protest. And essentially he was right. The power structure being when it was, the wait staff complained vociferously to each other, but only smiled and nodded their heads when the young MBA asked them what they thought of the new arrangements. He surely did not expect that his boss's daughter, a mere teenaged girl, would passionately educate her father about why the original arrangement worked so well and why the new arrangement did not, or to frame the discussion in terms of the unfairness to the wait staff. He surely didn't expect that she would insist that the equipment be put back whence it came, though one of the coolers did need to be replaced, with the threat that she would personally lead a strike of all the wait staff if it weren't. Yep. I did that. My father, being a reasonable man, saw the wisdom of my lesson and was amused by my threat. He consulted with the head waitress and had the waitstaff station put back as it was and eventually replaced one of the coolers with a much needed larger one. For that mishap and several others, I'm afraid that the arrogant young MBA didn't make it through the summer season. Oh well, I hope he learned his lesson. I surely did. I learned to always respect and acknowledge those who are doing the work, to ask them what works and what doesn't, to ask them what would make their jobs easier and more efficient. Another lesson I learned while working at the resort was how difficult and demoralizing it can be to work on a room cleaning crew. For a period of time, I cleaned rooms at the resort. It gave me a completely different view of those who can afford to pay hundreds of dollars a night for a room, which I imagine includes most of us here today. People do things in hotel rooms that they would never do at home, and they leave the most disgusting things for the cleaning crew secure in the knowledge that they will never have to answer for the messes they make or the inconveniences they cause. Having spent several formative years learning the ins and outs of the hotel and restaurant industry, I maintain that the most valuable employees of any hotel are the room cleaning crew. As a guest, if you walk into your assigned room and it's not clean and fresh, or if you find something disgusting left behind by the prior tenants, you may rece receive another assignment for that stay, 
But no matter what management says, you're unlikely to trust your health and well-being to that particular hotel again, and maybe not even to the entire hotel chain of which it is a part. That's how crucial room cleaning crews are to the overall success of a hotel. If you don't believe me, just browse through the comments about any hotel. Over and over again, the comments are about the cleanliness of the room, either positively or negatively. Do the wages of the cleaning crew reflect the importance of the work they do? No. I can't speak for Canada, but in the United States, most room cleaning crews barely make minimum wage, don't participate in any profit sharing plans, and are not included in any of the benefits enjoyed by management. They are largely invisible to guests. But were someone to ask, the cleaning crew could tell an investigator a lot about you, perhaps even things you yourself are unaware of. <laughs> so it pays to be mindful of what you leave behind. Speaking of which, I wonder if you leave a tip behind for the cleaning crew each day that you stay in a hotel. You know, in most cases, room assignments for the cleaning crew typically change each day. So the person who cleaned your room on day one will not necessarily be the person who'll clean your room on the other days of your stay. While you can't easily re reward the person who cleaned the room before you arrived, you can reward those who clean the room after you. Doing so is a way to affirm, promote, and embody our first principle, the inherent worth and dignity of all people, and to show your gratitude for those who are doing tasks that no one really wants to do. As Balaam learned the hard way, it is at our peril that we fail to hear and respond to the cries of the oppressed. They can see what we cannot. They see where our social safety nets have gigantic holes in them. And they see the life diminishing values our society has embraced. They can tell us how welcoming we truly are all our signs and marches aside. If we are truly committed to becoming more enlightened, more compassionate and more effective in righting the wrongs in our society, we must do as the donkeys do. We must see what is really happening around us. We must get to know those we seek to serve, Opening our eyes to the experience of others and respecting their lived experiences will remove obstacles in the way of realizing our six principles goal, a world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. Now, with mics muted, feel free to sing along to this familiar tune made popular by Johnny Nash, I Can See Clearly Now.
gonna be a bright, bright, bright and shiny day. I think I can make it now. The pain is gone. All of the bad feeling has disappeared. Here's the Hi there, my name is Andrew Mills and I'm the Canvas Chair. Well folks, time's up on this year's Canvas. By next week, I need to close out the Canvas and prepare an estimate of our donation income for our church budget. Right now, it looks like we may be 10% short of our budgeted amount. If you aren't on monthly donations or if you haven't pledged yet, then please pledge today. There's a Pledge Now button on the uce.ca homepage under the Canvas banner. Click on that button and it will take you to the online pledge form. If you have any issues with the pledge form, then you can email me your instructions at andrew at misc.ca. If you haven't pledged, I may also call you later this week to see what your instructions are. I want to thank everyone who has pledged already and thank everyone who contributes to the financial well-being of our church. Generosity is a spiritual practice, one that enlarges the heart and lightens the spirit. For no matter how much or how little we have, in the sharing of it, both the one who gives and the one who receives are blessed. 
We are a self-governing and self-supporting community. We rely on your donations to support our staff and to offer our programs. Now more than ever, we need your financial support. Please visit our website at uce.ca and click on Donate in the upper left corner to find the donation method that best suits you. For the month of March, we encourage you to also support the International Council of Unitarians and Universalists, the ICUU. Please visit their website for more information about them. You'll find a link to the ICUU page on our church homepage at uce.ca. And now, with mics muted, please join in singing hymn 402, From You I Receive. As we come to a close this morning, I want to make sure that we express our gratitude to those who have helped make this worship service possible. They include our host and greeter, Jeff Bizantz, our slide creator and runner, Karen Belita, our readers, Susan Rutan, Yvonne Moreau, and Gordon Ritchie, our recorder, Karen Belita, and our breakout room host, Lynn Turvey. G.K. Chesterton wrote a poem about the lowly donkey. In his poem, he incorporates both the appearance and the awkwardness and the status of the donkey, as well as the donkey's most memorable moment in biblical scripture. He writes, when fishes flew and forests walked and figs grew upon thorn, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born. With monstrous head and sickening cry and ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody on all four-footed things. The tattered outlaw of the earth of ancient crooked will, starve, scourge, deride me. I am dumb, I keep my secret still. Fools, for I also had my hour, one far fierce hour and sweet. There was a shout about my ears and palms before my feet. As we close our service by extinguishing our chalice, Yvonne Moreau will share the words of Reverend Eric Cherry, who reminds us in his work to chalice in our hearts that we do not need a candle or a cup to keep our flame alive. The chalice is lit in our hearts each time that we pray for vision, long for healing, forgive our enemies, comfort our neighbors, and prepare for justice's day. In its light, our hope and compassion are renewed, and the covenantal ties that bind each to all 
become clear. Now by its sacred flame, the path before us is brightened. Love prepares our way. Harmony is in view. There is no east or west, no south or north, only a world to greet and blessed with more light still. Blessed be. With mics muted, please join in singing our closing song, Carry the Flame. This concludes our worship service this morning. Please feel free to take a short comfort break, get a cup of coffee, and watch our weekly announcements as they slide by. In a few minutes, you'll be invited into randomly assigned breakout rooms for conversation and coffee, if you bring a cup, that is. You may accept the invitation to join a breakout room, you may decline the invitation, or you may accept the invitation, and then when you're ready, return to the main room. I will remain in the main room for about an hour for questions about the service and general discussion.